it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation of the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore. Here you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I cannot stress enough how much your ratings and reviews on iTunes mean to me. So thank you so much for those of you that added to the list this past week. Without these reviews, the situation and the story will not grow in listenership, and then someday I might have to shut it all down. No. So please write a review. Now. Pause. Got it? Okay. For my 15th episode, I sat down with someone who, for me, was a life changer and a game changer. Poet, essayist, and scholar, Adrian Kalfapalu. She lives and teaches in Athens, Greece, where she currently heads the English and Modern Languages Department at DeRee College. Lucky for me, she's also a poetry and nonfiction faculty mentor in the Low Residency Mile High MFA program at Regis University here in Denver. She has taught in the Master's Program of the Englishes Seminar at the University of Freiburg, the Graduate Writing Program at NYU, and Writing Workshops at the University of Edinburgh, and the Asian Arts Circle on the island of Andros. Her scholarly work has focused on 19th and 20th century American literature, and more recently, Ralph Waldo Emerson's influence on Sylvia Plath's poems. Why do you write? Why do I write? Because I feel most myself when I write. You know, so many parts of my life, I feel like I'm, you know, not particularly in my skin, whatever that means exactly. Um, so when I write, I feel like I'm inhabiting a space that I'm interested in, even if it's difficult. That's really interesting. And I've chosen it. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is the writing, you know, it's like you're building something. And yeah. it takes you into a space where you you have a certain amount of control and you're teaching yourself things. And as you're teaching yourself things, you're making space for surprises and for the unexpected, obviously. And there's an aspect of the, let's say, I, I, I don't know if it sounds overburdened to say hope. I mean, here it is, we're talking on Easter Sunday uh, for, you know, um, for for those who who uh, follow that, um, you know, the Catholics and the Anglicans and so forth. Greek Easter is actually next Sunday or our Orthodox Easter. But um, and I'm not particularly a person who's considers myself particularly religious. I mean, I'm really interested in the rituals um, right. of, of of religions 
more than anything, and also the kind of the community building aspects of of the, some of that. So writing puts me, I think, into a place where I feel like on some level I'm communing with with something beyond myself while I'm also participating. So there's a there's a, also a, a form of um, the company of it, oddly enough, even though yeah. to be a writer, you have to be able to live in a certain amount of isolation and, and you have to actually be able to, to be alone for long periods of time, which is one of the reasons why I think some people don't really go the whole nine yards with it. Because that's, a, I mean, you might have a, an amazing talent, but just, you know, feel that that amount of time alone that the, that the writing, that the vocation requires is just too much. Or there are periods of your life, you know, all of us, where, where we desire that kind of isolation and other times when we, we seek out others. I mean, at least that's, yeah. that's true for me. I mean, I've gone through periods where I'm really happy to be on my own and um and seek it out and then there are times that i like to be in the company of people not necessarily people i know you know or know well i enjoy actually sometimes being around people that i don't know that well yeah um, that that is a little bit akin to the writing process for me because it's like i'm in being introduced to um figures, instances, circumstances that I don't know that well, but I know, I know, and I don't, you know, so it's a little bit like that. Yeah. So I want to get a little bit of your sense of personal history. Oh boy. Isn't that a, <laughs> I love the look on your face when you said that. <laughs> well, I know like, like we that both, really, Chris, that was great. That was kind of priceless. Well, we both we both geek out on like identity and place, and I know I don't even know. <laughs> like I know you're in Athens, Greece. I know you're Greek. I don't know part where you grew I'm not, up. I'm not. I'm not. Um. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, people who do know a bit of my history. When that question comes up, they kind of laugh and <laughs> they they decide to go and like buy a sandwich or something because it takes a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my father's Greek. Um, and I guess that comes through in some of my work. My, my mother's Italian born American. Um, she grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and her, you know, very working class family, steel mills. Her father actually died of lead poisoning because he did like night shifts in the mills. And, um, she really, she really wanted to escape that um, family of five, five uh, siblings, uh, a sister who um, was challenged uh, mentally and lived at home her whole life until she was much older. And my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, Dimasi, she, you know, she never put my, my aunt Lena into any kind of institution. And it was just kind of like that extended family, Southern European thing which happens in Greece too. Um, yeah. So then she met my father who had just left Greece after, or yeah, it was like the, the very tail end of the second world war where he was in the resistance um, against the Nazi occupation. And um, 
he had to get out really fast because right on the heels of the Second World War was a civil war, like a major civil war in Greece. Mm. And that was like communists versus the allies. Or I mean, there's a lot of ironies and it's kind of complicated, but, you know, the resistance, even though they were just kids from neighborhoods going to the mountains, you know, to fight the Nazis, frankly, um, this was backed by Tito and he was backed by Stalin. So what happened with the civil war is that all the resistance fighters who were just basically fighting for their country were, you know, stamped as communist. And then Churchill at the Yalta, you know, when they divided Europe and they said, okay, this part of Europe is going to be communist and this is going to be the free world. It became like a bloodbath. I mean, some people have said that the civil war in Greece was worse than the site when that worse than the occupation. So wow. he got out like on a sort of, you know, on a fake passport or something to to Iran um, and then made his way to the States. So he must have been in his early 20s. And um, and my mother, um, it, who came from this, you know, working class steel mill, Pitts, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, she was doing flight school in New York. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. It's such a story. It's a it's a manuscript I've been sitting on for a long time. Um, I can't quite get it. I know what I want to do with it, but it, it's, it's a talk about a complicated mess, but <laughs> I, I mean, I wrote, I spent two years writing it and, um, and, you know, I get a lot of nice responses uh, for the manuscript. Um, it's called my mother's voice and in brackets where I needed her to be. So I'm sure mm. that resonates with you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because I mean, my father, I mean, even though he had this just like phenomenal kind of background and their meeting was kind of very 1950s romantic, even though it wasn't the 1950s um, or maybe it was actually. Yes, it was. Um, they um, they met because my mom was in New York and, you know, doing flight school because she was going to fly TWA domestic flights. That was her dream, like literally to fly. And wow. um, and my dad had just like as she says just gotten off the boat <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. he had this like, heavy Greek accent, you know, um, couldn't speak English very well, I guess. And um, and you know, she with a bunch of her flight attendant school mates, you know, were renting somewhere in Queens, and this like house of like you know newly arrived migrants, attractive guys, you know, hung out. <laughs> So obviously, inevitably, they connected for for the good or the bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he started working as a truck driver for something or other. And then the, that company sort of said, we're going to extend and go to Southeast Asia and do import export stuff. And so he went and took my mom and they went to Saigon, Vietnam, which is where I was born. Oh, wow. So that's why people go for sandwiches when people ask. Me <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so how long were you there? I guess seven years. And then when the war got really bad, which was, uh, when did the war get really bad? 69? No, 71, 72, like the Tet defense. Anyway, this is when Indochina, you know, I mean, there were the French who were the colonizers there. And then you had, of course, the Vietnam War. And my father knew a lot of people in the American embassy. 
because of his trading stuff. All, all my friends think he worked for the CIA and he just never has told us. Uh, but, you know, that, I mean, they, I mean, that's also a possibility because a lot of his friends were CIA. I mean, you know, Vietnam during the Vietnam War, the American embassy. I mean, so, I mean, yeah. he doesn't I mean, I don't think he worked for the CIA directly, but obviously he worked with people from the State Department. Um, so he was like his company was the middle middle people between like for parts like electrical equipment, they were putting radars together. They were helping with trains, machines. Anyway, this is the story. Um, so um, so when the Tet Offense, when when the Viet Cong came into Saigon, we moved, my, my mom and my two brothers and I went to Bangkok, to Thailand. But my father stayed on and tried to get as many of the people working in the company, the trading company, it was called American Trading Company, he tried to get them passports as fast as he could. Uh, so there's this like iconic figure on Time magazine, or maybe it's Newsweek, where you see the American embassy and like it looks like it's a beehive because there's so many people hanging off the walls trying to get in when the Viet Cong came into Saigon. So my dad said, you know, my dad's very proud of the fact that he got almost everybody passports and supposedly married like overnight with somebody in the embassy. So, and they got out and wow. you know, um, he used to get phone calls when we lived in Connecticut, after we moved from Thailand to Connecticut, you know, he would get phone calls from these families who had relocated to places like California or wherever in the States, thanking him for that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think it's part of, I mean, when I think about it, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if my, my, my kind of very organic kind of attraction to refugees and refugee families has something to do with this background. Yeah. Because you know? essentially, you know, my family comes out, I think as most American families, despite the fact that Trump wants to say otherwise, come from migrant backgrounds, right? Right. And, and sometimes overtly refugee backgrounds, you know, depending, I mean, isn't that what, isn't that what the Statue of Liberty and Emma Lazarus's poem is all about? Bring me your Absolutely. tired and weary, right? Yeah. So you guys moved to Connecticut after that? Yeah, we moved to Connecticut. We went. Uh, I went to high school in Stamford, Connecticut. I um, I totally bombed my SATs. Like like I I got some points for putting in my name. <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, the, all the all the all the technical stuff I got right, I think. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, everything else was just really pretty appalling because I had never, I had never tried any of this kind of testing. Plus, I am probably dyslexic. I mean, I've never been tested for dyslexia, but I, I'm I'm pretty convinced I must have some form of it. Um, huh. Yeah, because I got like these like abysmal, abysmal scores and I got in early decision to Brown and nobody could believe it. Like my like they were just like, what happened there? Because I got something like 400 on my math and maybe yeah. 600 on my English. Um, yeah. But I had like um, I did. I don't know if they still have them achievement tests. You know, you have to like take tests in the subject area. Yeah. So like my subject areas did, I did well, like one was English literature and maybe one was French. And um, I don't know what the other one was. I don't remember, but yeah. And then, so how did you end up in Greece? 
Well, I think I came back to Greece because my father, who uh, is an only child, um, you know, was very close to his parents. And while we were in Southeast Asia, we would come to Athens to see his parents uh, pretty regularly because like the trips to the U.S. were just too far away. And, um, you know, he was he always wanted to see his parents. He was very close to them. And um, so so I, too, became close to them. And then when we moved, like as we moved around, I think Greece was always my point of reference um, through my grandparents. And, you know, when we moved to the States, I guess I was. 14 or maybe no, I was maybe 15 or 16. Um, yeah, it was like two, I had a year and a half of high school left and, um, and it was kind of a traumatic time because I, um, I, um, you know, I mean, it's adolescence, right? You just don't want to move around in adolescence, I guess. And it all felt very alien to me. And, um, so Greece was the place where I felt, um, home, because of my grandparents and because, you know, we had come here pretty consistently for the summers. Uh, the States was very new to me, you know, and it was rather odd, you know, it was foreign. And um, yeah. So after I graduated from Brown, I um, did about, I did a stint in New York working for a publishing company for E.P. Dutton for maybe, I don't even know if it was a full year even, but my grandparents weren't very well because they were older. And so I decided to come back and sort of hang out and be with them, um, you know, after the time at E.P. Dutton, because I figured I could teach English as a foreign language in Athens. And I could also, and there was like an English language um, journal at that time called the Athenian. So I was going to write for them, which I did. And um so when was that? That was like 1982, maybe, or 84, maybe 84, 84, or 85, you know. So um, that's when I came back to Greece. And then I went back. I stayed with my grandparents. My grandfather died. And then I applied for an MF. I wanted to do a MFA, which at that point, there was no NYU didn't have an MFA. It had an MA. But yeah. you, did, you did an MFA degree you know, you did a thesis that was creative. So right. I applied and that at that point it was a very new program. It was just starting and Galway Canal, the poet had started it. And so he had um, E.L. Doctorow was one of the fiction writers who he brought on board and Carolyn Forche, who had just come back from El Salvador. And, you know, her book, The Country Between Us had just come out and um, Sharon Olds also. So these were they were all in their, well, different ages. I mean, Galway and E.L. Doctorow uh, were, were older. I guess they were older, like they were in their 50s. Uh, Carolyn and Sharon were probably, you know, in their mid-30s or something. Um, so that was like an amazing experience. And that got me going with writing. You know, yeah. back, I, um, I mean, it was like, again, like Brown, I didn't expect to get in because I really didn't have any of the... I didn't have any of the conventional con- credentials. Yeah. I mean, I, I promise you in this day and age, I would not have gotten into either of those places, you know, given because there are just so many people. No, I believe this because I just think there's there's just many more of us on this earth. And I think that people are more I mean, there's just a lot more people seeking out um, 
these kinds of programs than they were when in my generation. You yeah. Know, it, wasn't, it wasn't new, new, but it wasn't, it wasn't the MFA deal was not what it is. I mean, just to make the point, NYU didn't even call it MFA. It was, MFA, right. you know, and we had to take all these like odd courses that we all like did terribly in like linguistics requirements and things like, that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, so you said, my next question was about this sense of home and you mentioned that Greece felt like home base to you because of your grandparents. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how sense of place or sense of home kind of informs your writings. You write a lot about that, especially working with refugees. I see a lot of kind of the theme of boundary in your writing and things like that. What do you think? Yeah, well, I would, I would probably put in a, a, I would probably reverse that and say that um, I think what ends up happening a lot in my work is, um, you know, a sense of displacement and by virtue of the displacement, the question of home presents itself, but I seem to be drawn, you know, not always very consciously to this, this idea of dislocation, displacement on all levels. I mean, from, you know, gender and imbalances there uh, to questions of, you know, who's, who's allowed in or out of certain borders, you know, on the level of nation and culture. So I think, I think, you know, what I'm working on now, these essays I'm working on now, kind of explores this idea of shelter, but in very, you know, kind of multiple ways. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, they're again, linked essays, I guess, but um, I mean, I, I see this, this work in progress as much more like, um, I think it's closer to the way, you know, sort of chords of music, like you have high and low, you know, some pieces are more like jazz, other pieces are more like opera, other pieces are more like, you know, riffs, you know, so these are different tonal shifts on the subject matter. But yeah, home, I mean, home is complicated as it is for, I think, most of us, um, especially in a late 20th, early 21st century context. Yeah. Um, I find myself really interested in, I mean, what's interesting about the refugee communities I've come to know is there's a paradox at work, which is I have found that these are people who carry their culture with them in very um, concrete ways, such as food and, you know, the ways that they will cook, even given the lack of certain kinds of, or the lack of accessibility of certain ingredients or tools or, you know, the, the pots, even that. Yeah. And nevertheless, nevertheless, the, the lengths that will be, or, you know, almost in a very fluid sense, when I say the lengths, I don't mean it's some sort of terribly difficult. I mean, but the, it's very um, um, resourceful, I would say, yeah. you know, and um, I find that that, sense of culture gives so many of the people I've met a a groundedness or a rootedness despite their radical, you know, uprootedness. Yeah. I find that so interesting. Yeah. That that is interesting. It's almost like, 
I mean, it's, it's a, Chris, it's like, I feel like sometimes that I'm meeting my, you know, something kindred, you know, or like there's an element of nurture there. Yeah. Um, It's like, it's very human. It feels like. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very human on a very fundamental level, you know, and it's so interesting because now in our, in this pandemic thing, you know, the, the, the questions, I mean, it's all still very new, but the, the question of the human becomes very central. Yes. I mean, it's literally so in terms of the body, but it's also just, you know, brass tack stuff. Like we need masks or we need food or we need hands to help us. Um, you know, it's very, it's very physical in that way, you know, physical in the way you move yourself through space and time and make yourself useful to the other. I mean, yeah. this is what refugees communities teach us as well. These are people who have lost the accoutrements, let's say, of what might have been a culture and a class where they had certain rituals in place, where they did certain things on Thursdays, where they took their kids, whoever, wherever, where, you know, they they had certain meals on certain days and they went to their places of worship and so on and so forth. So all of this is like dismantled and they're just seen as as a refugee just that word becomes yeah. main definition the trumps sorry unfortunate verb uh the uh reality of identity on so many more complex levels right so in a yeah. way what we're doing now what we're going through now is a kind of global moment like that with this pandemic yeah how uh, we know how speaking of your word trump we know how you know Refugees from South and Central America are even viewed or not even, we don't even use the word refugee here. We use the word alien or. Right. That's, that's something. Yeah. Even more dehumanizing, but politically in Greece and, and Southern Europe, like what's the kind of aura around or the attitude around? Well, it's complicated. I mean, it's yeah. not. It's very complicated because, you know, as you as you know, and this is what's fed the last two books I've done, um, you know, Greece went through uh, an austerity regime um, that that just economically dismantled it. And um, in the midst of that, we have the refugee flows, the human flows coming from the Middle East through Turkey, mainly. And so, you know, the confluence of this, you know, kind of human disaster story in a sense, yeah. uh, you know, um, really, really challenged, you know, the culture, the communities, the societies. I mean, I don't know if you've read, but in Lesbos, you know, in Mitilini, which is the entrance point, um, this was a, this was a, this was a, a an island that was heroic in its acceptance of those first flows and when we say first flows, we're talking, you know, a couple of years from maybe 2013, 2012, up through 2015, when the major flows were coming through, uh, through to 2017 or so forth. I mean, it's still flows to me, but the Moira camp, which brought in all kinds of NGOs and all kinds of people from all over the EU and elsewhere to help, then was abandoned uh, when, um, when the... Um, Europeans voted that they had to put an end to this, you know, and close the borders. And the borders closed in 20, in the spring, I believe of 2016, I think. Um, The borders just like slammed shut. 
And it was, you know, it's like water being stopped, like everybody like jammed, you know, into a place and it's an island, it's a village culture. Yeah. Now, it's a disaster. I mean, literally, I mean, there's trash everywhere. There's, you know, people coming in from these like traumatic, if you can even call it, well, journeys, um, those who survive them. And, you know, where once upon a time there was a warm UNHCR, the United Nations blankets, food, and, and many of us went there to help out. You know, it was one of those things that's happening on your doorstep. You want to do what you can. Um, and, and, and then people left when the borders closed um, or it was not sustainable or they couldn't handle it or, uh, and we had a kind of, I mean, we seem to have the, we seem to have a series of dysfunctional governments and, um, the previous one, which was the socialist government anyway. So, you know, only in, only in title, right. Um, <laughs> you know, they, um, they just made a mess, you know, not that other governments haven't. I mean, they were overwhelmed, but, you know, certain money came into Greece to help and to create certain infrastructures. And, you know, the public sector was bloated, you know, and people did what they could. I'm not saying it was a complete failure, but Europe really just washed their hands of something that they needed to share the responsibility in, you know, more so. Now we have a very conservative government that's come in and um, right wing and while their stance on the refugees was nothing to write home about, uh, their stance on the pandemic has been very good. I mean, they because they're conservative and because they were listening to immunologists and we saw what was happening in Italy, which is just a tragedy, yeah. and New York, obviously. I mean, it's just the whole thing. I mean, it really shows, you know, what the governments are made of in, in really kind of basic ways. So this government, uh, very... Um, you know, pragmatically and in a foresighted way, because they saw what was going on in Italy. And after Greece had been through this 10 years of austerity with a health system that's much weaker than Italy's, realized that if they didn't shut everything down, like right away, yeah. we were one of the countries that shut things down very quickly. That I mean, as far as, I, as far as I'm concerned, we wouldn't even have been on the map after this. Right. If, if if it hit us the way it hit Italy or Spain or New York. Wow. So, you know, so far so good on that. So I didn't I don't know if I answered your question, Chris. About the <laughs> I mean, I want to um, say that I want to say the refugee situation continues to be actually going back to this government as 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 proactive as they've been in terms of shutting down schools and taking care of citizenry. They've They've been pretty appalling in terms of the refugees, because there have been some outbreaks on some of the camps, uh, Malacasa, Rizziona, uh, in Lesbos as well. And I'll just say this, because, I mean, I was just shocked. And I have a lot of respect for the fact that they were proactive. And, you know, it's it has saved lives, literally. But, you know, what's her name? Christiana Anapur from CNN. Uh-huh. She was interviewing the PM uh, a couple of days ago. And, you know, he was talking about what a great thing Greece did for, you know, the, you know, dealing with the lockdown. Yeah. And he said so. And then toward the end of the interview, she asks him about the refugees. And I mean, I could see that his facial sort of muscles changed a little bit. And then he said, um, well, you know, we haven't had one outbreak of um, 
of the virus yet. And and he mentioned the islands. And I mean, it was a lie because there had yeah. there had been outbreaks on the islands. Yeah. So I mean, they're going to have to deal with this. And there was there was just I just read it today. There's a great article in the New Yorker, and it's talking about refugees and and COVID. Um, and what needs to be done and how much this has to be a collective effort. Yeah. I mean, they still have, we in the U S still have, you know, the camps, nobody's been let out and there's uh, the ice, the ice detention center, for example, here in Aurora. Yeah. where, Where there's been people out there every day in their cars trying to protest and get, yeah. get people out but it's not been very successful what's um what's gonna happen though i mean i mean i mean he's i mean he's just i mean who knows but yeah. have there been i mean there have been outbreaks right of covid yeah in, it, in these centers like what about at the border and what's going on with those horrifying like cages yeah exactly and on top of that even just the the regular for lack of a better term prisons throughout the country there's been breakouts and it's crazy yeah Um, yeah yeah i mean i i had a i was you know it's it's like on a on a lighter note um i you know walking around the neighborhood uh i mean we can't go out for very long periods of time we're supposed to ten- send messages on our cell phones to um a particular number saying that we're leaving the house and oh, so wow. they can track us um and so you know we go out for groceries we go out to walk and um so i ran in in, in i you know some of the some of the people working really overtime are obviously the pharmacists and obviously the doctors in the hospitals So the local pharmacist, you know, I saw her and she said, well, you know, we at least pretend or try to um, veil the fact that human life is expendable. But what's happening in the States is just incredible. Yeah. I mean, the sense of the expendable, you know, the, the the body as artifact or the body as commodity. Commodity, object. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of bodies being buried in New York City, just in like mass graves. It's interesting. I mean, what's, you know, what's, what's, what's kind of shockingly, I don't know, is this the word to use shockingly familiar? I mean, the way that, 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 um, that, you know, Trump acts is like some sort of pre-edible, you know, kind of creature, I want to say child, but that hurts. I mean, I mean, he, he, you know, because he actually says, you know, that because the governors aren't being nice to him, you know, he doesn't know if he wants to give them money. Um, You know, we listen to things like this on, on this side of the earth and we wonder like, Oh my God, what, what's happened over there? <laughs> it's like on a, on the, in a Freudian sense, it's like pure id. Yeah. Right. There you go. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I, and I talk to family members. I mean, my mother every day who 
just, you know, bows down to Trump, kisses his feet. It's, 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 you know, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, I mean, the thing, this is a big, this is a big question and it's, it's interesting and also kind of deadly. Um, you know, I talked to friends of mine in the States and as you're saying now, I think if we could just have one person who's a Trump supporter, not vote in November, we will have done something. Yeah. So I was telling this close friend of mine, you know, whose friend who, you know, um, vote is voting for this guy. Um, I said, you know, try to convince her. And she's, she teaches in the university, um, the, the person who's voting for Trump. And I said, you know, try to just, con just convince this person that they're going to do like a good turn by just not turning up. They don't have to vote for a Democrat, but just that they don't vote. You know, as as I mean, who was it? Somebody um, was talking about. I think Chris Hedges. He's so he's so brilliant. He's um you know was he he taught. I mean no taught. He uh, wrote. <laughs> yeah, he probably he I'm, he teaches too. But anyway, he's a journalist, um, and he was talking about how Trump supporters are like act like people in a cult. Yes. Um, you know, and so it's not about logic. But it's almost worse because you don't see people turning away. Like with cults, you see people making an attempt to escape. At some point, they realize this is not, you know, this is not what I want to be a part of. You don't see people turning away from Trump after, like, I mean, he said it himself. He could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in the middle of the street and he wouldn't lose any followers. And I, isn't that, isn't that isn't that so indicative of a cult leader's kind of statement, right? Yes. Um, you know, and and why do people? I mean, the thing about cults is, you know, there's there's. I mean, it's like abusive relationships. You know, you, yes. you feel like a part of yourself is invested in that person's ego yes. itself. So it's yeah. complicated. It's not. You can't approach it like, don't you see, blah, blah, you know, because they do. And it makes it worse, in fact. Exactly. There's like a shame element, you know? Yeah. I've talked about this with a lot of my podcast guests, actually, as I've tried to, like, piece my way through why, um, why people support him or why even, like, my mother who, you know, was a victim of sexual assault for most of her life would support someone like this. And it really is, I, I've come to find it's such a part, you know, you're, you're aligning yourself with power and it's such a part of your identity that to turn away from it would, would be too much. almost. Exactly. Cause you dismantle yeah. your own sense of self. Yes. You know, Which, and then that, that's so dark though like that how sad and unfortunate um but it's a reality chris i mean i think darkness i mean since we're on the subject of darkness i want to i want to say though <laughs> yeah, one of my favorites wow, i feel very comfortable i can get really comfortable <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean because i just i i feel like um, I mean, I don't think people should go into like, I remember something, one of the presses that I sort of work with was saying, we, we don't want submissions that deal with like the 
pain pornography. And, I, right. and it impressed me, pain pornography, because I think so much, so much of writing and so much of what we're going through in our own historical moment is full of pain. So I was trying to kind of unpack that phrase. And I was thinking, okay, but on the other hand, I think part of the problem and part of the reason we're in this space is because like people who follow Trump, there's a delusional element where we're afraid to look at the darkness for what it is. And so the instinct is to, you know, let's be positive, let's be hopeful, which is great and fine. But is your hope based on like cotton candy or is it something you can actually like, is it a, is it a building you can walk in without having the roof like destroy you? Right. Yeah. I tend towards that. Just philosophically. Yeah. It it drives me nuts. The kind of the positivity culture. (laughs) I mean, and it's very American too. I feel like, I mean, it's something that I love about the culture. I mean, we talked about this, remember, because we went back and forth on the ending of your, of your thesis. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of connected to that on some level. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, that we move into the fatalism, you know, of, you know, let's say a Southern Southern European writer or a kind of, you know, um, sense of darkness in, in a duende sense, although I'm very fond of duende. And I think it has to do also with history and culture. But the United States is young historically, relatively, even though its youth is based on, you know, the genocide of uh, all the native cultures, but, um, but it's, it's conceptual, you know, as a culture. And the concept is so beautiful and so seductive. And I, and I think the founding fathers were completely convinced that they were going to do something new and good, you know, but like any adolescent, you know, um, you, you're really tied to your dream, but then, you know, you hit the kind of reality checks along the way. And in yeah. some ways, I think the nation um, is having like growing pains and somebody like Trump, you know, allows for people to like regress, you know, his whole let's make America great again is just so regressive. And it's such a perversion. It's yeah. a grotesque perversion of those values. So like, I mean, I mean, I, I'm an Americanist. That was my degree. That's what I did my PhD on was, you know, American literature. I was, I sort of kind of traced um, certain concepts of society building. And I mean, I did it through the literature. I mean, I was doing some Hawthorne, Margaret Fuller, and then it kind of comes all the way up to Tori, Toni Morrison oh. and how her view of black America kind of dismantles, deconstructs this, you know, white, but also gendered, you know, um, uh, paradigm that suppresses the notion of the other instead of allowing the notion of the other to reconstruct, which is what what's so gorgeous about America. I mean, up through FDR and so forth. I mean, none of these people were saints, but they had like a belief in, you know, first of all, a collective good and these foundational values out of the Constitution. They believed them. You know, I mean, there were certain things they wouldn't, you know, the, the, the certain lines they wouldn't pass. Now, now we have like basically a con man, you know, I won't even call him a con artist, you know, I mean, just sort of a gangster type of person. Yeah. Um, but it's also reflective of a, of a, of a, of an insecurity in the culture that he's tapped into. 
And, you know, he knows he's cunning, you know, he's very cunning and he understands insecurities. He's a businessman. He has a nose for this shit. So, um, unfortunately his followers, you know, are also are, are followers whose, you know, money becomes a value in itself. It's kind of terrifying. I, I think about all the momentum that were, was behind just a month or so ago that was behind the progressive left over here and yeah. how I was just like squashed. <laughs> it's like, I love your uh, use of the term growing pains for the U S right now. That's perfect. But I also feel like we are waking up in a sense or just like very blatantly challenging the status quo, but it almost feels like, impossible just because of the money that's behind the money and the, I don't know. It feels yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I think you yeah. said like I want to be an expat. <laughs> well, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it always looks greener on the other side. Right. I know. I know. I don't mean to romanticize, but it's hard to find, to, to hold on to hope. Right. I talked about hope. It's like, well, <laughs> Um, I recently heard, um, somebody say, and I thought it was a beautiful and so true. She said, um, American government, there's nothing compassionate about American government and the way it's structured in today, it's brutal, but American people are among the most compassionate. And I, I would agree with that. You know, I feel, I feel that I feel that. There's something, I mean, I mean, all of Henry James's novels are all about this, you know, coming to Europe for the history, for the sophistication, you know, for, and then you're seduced by these kind of jaded aristocrats, you know, his, his women. That's why I really like your work, because I think you're, you embrace this idea of travel in the larger sense of the word. You know, we, I mean, I think anything that's, I mean, you can be provincial anywhere. I mean, New York City can be hugely provincial. So, you know, when you have a, when you have this kind of um, defensive, reactive type of government that's currently in power, um, and then you have this major crisis of the pandemic. I mean, it's like the perfect storm. But on some level, it might be also the thing that dismantles that, that kind that's, of that's, that's what I'm I'm uh, like it's the perfect time but now we've got what Joe Biden as a democratic uh, presidential nominee coming up and it's so you're being you're being very you're being very idealistic and I'm with you cuz I didn't I didn't want him either um and, and you know as as people abroad we could we did put in ballots you know for the primaries but um, but at the same time, you know, anything to get the other one out. I don't know. I, I don't know that I agree with that. Well, do you think, um, I mean, <clears throat> if he has a running mate, I mean, if his VP is, uh, a great person or somebody more progressive than himself, that will help, won't it? I mean, do you yeah. feel, do you think he's going to lose the democratic vote because it's him? I think everybody's going to, I mean, not that people are going to be happy about voting for him. But I mean, people need to vote. I mean, it's a it's a moment where there's, you know, I mean, this, there's so much on the line here. And I will like I'll vote. But I know there's there's 
huge uh, groups of progressives, Bernie supporters. Um, sure. That's well, why I want it. Well, yeah, they that that won't. They will oh, not. Really? Yeah. I think that's unfortunate, Chris. Well, I mean, that's kind of what happened last term, right? So, I mean, in a danger I, moment. I understand it, though. <laughs> like, oh, I yeah, it's, it. I, I voted last term. Of course I'll vote this term, but it's been decades now of this. I mean, from all the way, I mean, since George W. Yeah, so. but, but, but the thing is, is it's like, I mean, living in, in Europe and living in Southern Europe in particular, pol- politics is, you know, like going to church. You know, it is church. So, you know, the not voting, like, just to give you a perspective on that, up until when was maybe five years ago, you you had to vote in Greece. Right, right. Like, like your voting book wasn't stamped. That was considered um, a misdemeanor that you didn't vote. I think that's amazing. I think a lot of folks here have lost faith that, that even that their vote has any bearing on what happens between the electoral college and the perception that elections are just stolen outright anyway. But that's even more reason to do it. You do it, you know, for the principle, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, that's where the collective comes in. You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about that recently. This has been a lot on my mind. Like when do we give up the individual thing that we as lucky enough to be born in, you know, Western cultures, you know, have certain kinds of choices that other cultures don't have, especially as women. Um, You know, when do we, when do we compromise or at least, you know, find, you know, decide on choosing the collective? Like I'm going to do something that I'm not happy with, but I have to do it because in the long run, it's going to help a larger group. And You know, when you think of American culture, you think it's founded on this whole like ethos of the individual, which is, you know, a wonderful thing, which is also why a lot of people want to go there and why. I mean, here I am. I mean, I just I've, um, you know, I've been applying for a couple of years now for positions in the States and I actually have a visiting position that I'll be going to next year in in the U.S. um, at Davidson College. But I haven't like. I haven't announced it yet because the background check is still going, you know, it's, I mean, I'm still, it's still going in process, but, but, you know, uh, so here I am in Greece and people are, and I think to myself, people are going to think I'm just crazy that I would want to go to the States at this point. (laughs) Well, (laughs) but I do (laughs) because I like you want to change. I I agree when you said like the American people are some of the most, compassionate or whatever um, words you used. And it's so disheartening to see such a con like to, to not see that reflected in the values of the nation or the government. It's so, it feels dark. We were talking about darkness. It feels dark, but it is dark. So going back to this darkness, I mean, I think for there to be any possibility of a light or a hope, you know, and all the, all the major archetypes and archetypal trajectories from Dante's Inferno to, you know, Homer's Odysseus, the return, you, you have to go, you have to pass through the Cyclops. You have to, you know, go through those circles. 
and and that's I think part of the the beginning of the possibility of any kind of light is in traveling the darkness. I mean, gonna, as simplistic as that might sound, I'm gonna I'm gonna connect this um, very strategically back to a piece of your writing. But earlier you talked about the toxic relationship uh, of you know, Trump supporters are cult leaders and their followers um, and how to turn away from that would, you know, dismantle your reality kind of thing. Yeah. There, there, there's, yeah. there's a piece of yours that I really, really want to talk about the wig and the scream. My other stuff. Uh-huh. Very yeah. different, but it's one of my favorites. And I, you managed to kind of weave a relationship with your ex, your friends, dissolving marriage, a run in with a cop and a thriller TV series. <laughs> um, but you do talk about how, you know, your ex or your friend let the husband back in or return to the husband like 11 or something times. Yeah. And I feel like that's related. <laughs> Sure. To this, you know, idea. I'm trying to see how does this kind of power dynamic and identity dynamic relate to romantic love? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and, and and also just the craft of that piece. Like, how the hell did you do that? It's beautiful. It's incredible. How how did your ideas get born? Oh, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I go through a gazillion revisions and I never know the shape until I know it. Mm-hmm. And so there's no like formula, but I'm very, I, I want to say I'm very intuitive. Um, and that goes for everything I do from my relationships to my teaching to, you know, you know, just about everything and my writing, obviously. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, the intuitive part was, uh, I know, I pull like pieces together, and I keep notes, but I don't keep notes, necessarily thinking it's going to go into a poem or into a um, essay. I keep notes, in, you know, handwritten notes in a journal. And then I started keeping notes on my iPhone in the notes section. And um and so as I'm as these notes come together, I, I I start seeing shapes. And so the watching the killing with my friend was something that kind of connected the visits that I would make to see her. So the killing became a trope, but I didn't know that right away. And I just I, I wanted the idea of the kind of horror film or the thriller to be a part of it because basically that's what she was going through. And Frankly, that's basically what people do go through when they're in, um, you know, volatile or vulnerable relationships that that then become toxic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing in terms of keeping notes and, you know, pulling t- them together and being very intuitive about when it's ready. So I wrote The Wig and the Scream. I tried to write The Wig and the Scream as an essay, a, a sort of regular essay. 
and it and it felt very solipsistic and messy and kind of melodramatic and all of that. So a lot of times, you know, the question of what do you do when material is is kind of overly dramatic or melodramatic, you know, how do you how do you maintain it so it doesn't lose its power? Yeah. So then I then I remembered uh, Jennifer Egan has a short story or in the and I think it's called the black box or the little black box or something like that. Okay, so it's she she had the short story in the New Yorker. And it was it was written like tweets. Mm. I mean, it had literally when the tweets were like seventeen characters or something, you yeah. know, much smaller. And I just remember that, and I and I've used it when I teach creative writing. I use her, I use that particular because it's great, and you should look it up. It's called I think it's called the Black Box or the Little Little Black Box or something of that sort. Jennifer Egan in the New Yorker. Yeah. Right. And um, and that and I thought, oh, I want to do that because I'm very promiscuous about my write about my reading. I mean, I read anything and I'm, I don't have really, a, I'm also kind of probably promiscuous about my writing too, because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not wedded to a style. Right. You no, know, I mean, I, I very much believe, and this is a lot that came up in our conversations. And when I, you know, mentor, I think, you know, we have to be very um, close to the content and let the content ver- teach us of the yeah. shape. And that takes time. Yeah. You know, this took me about, I'd say two years. That was another question. Two years. How would you describe like the genre of the piece? Well, that's interesting that you say that because my friend calls it a poem. Right. I superstition review published it as nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the safest thing is to call it something hybrid. It's a kind of hybrid piece. And, you know, it's like Anne Boyer who I, who I of course adore, um, I like her work. I mean, I don't think, I think it's uneven. I don't think she's always, um, you know, spot on. And that's another reason why I adore her too, because yeah. I think she's very, um, you know, she's out there and she's, she's one of the writers that I, whose politics and her, and her sort of aesthetics, I just like the way they're in conversation with each other, which means that we shouldn't be under this kind of, um, you know, fascism of perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and and otherwise we're not going to write or we're going to be in like real. I mean, everything teach every writing teaches us something. And even this manuscript that I've been sitting on, the Mother's Voice manuscript, which it frustrates me. But I think, OK, I have to let it sit and I'm probably going to return to it and it's going to find another shape. Not unlike the wig and the scream. Not not that it will become like that. But it's very experimental and it's auto. It's auto theory. You know, it's right. really theoretically so the auto theory or like auto fiction means that the language itself the writing process itself is so so language becomes its own subject and i think sometimes just writing will generate a lot of stuff that you don't use but i i do think it's important to generate a lot of writing so that it's like a conversation because then you start seeing more possibilities for the shapes and that 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 happened with the wig and the screen. For as short as it is, and for as tight as it is, it took a long time and a lot of different kind of efforts that didn't come to completion to get to that. Right. Um, you spoke about being uh, very intuitive, which I think at my core is is something that I also am like that I have the intuition. But have you ever felt like uh, <laughs> your intuition was? stuck 
or broken or you were far from it and and what do you do in that case because I've been like I don't even want to reapproach the manuscript because I want to have I want to see an end point before I start even tinkering with it and I can't wrap my head around the form that it's supposed to take the I can't wrap my head around it at all now that it's out on the page. Okay. All right. That's a great question. I think we need to be generous um, and democratic with ourselves, which means what? Everybody wants to be read, I guess. I don't always want all my stuff to be read. Uh, Sometimes I want to be more patient with myself and realize that my writing is teaching me as much as I'm shaping it. So sometimes we need to be democratic about time that way, instead of insisting that, you know, whatever, come hell or high water, I'm going to have this manuscript done. Yeah, sure, you'll have it done, which is what I did with this previous manuscript that deals with my mother. But it might be just too much wet paint. It might just need its own time before I can look at it and see its shape. So we have to kind of respect, that's the generosity to ourselves, you know, not beating yourself up because it just hasn't gotten to what you needed or been accepted. Because sometimes that writing was necessary for you to write the book that does get published. Right. Or, and this happens a lot with dissertations too, you know, sections of it will get published. Um, And Anne Boyer again says something um, very important. And she said this a couple of times in different forms. You know, she has a book that she's written that she's never shown or she's never published and she sits on it. And it's interesting how she refers to it in different points. You know, it's come up a couple of times I've noticed. So I think it feeds her, but I also think there must be something about it that maybe she wants or might want to have published. So the thing is, is to give yourself the permission to write whatever you need to write and not necessarily put the added pressure that this has to be the thing that makes your name or the thing that is going to be the book and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, from the moment you have the need to do it, you'll always do it. Yeah. And then comes the art, the crafting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I remember I was really um, hurt if not insulted when um, a friend, well, I guess, yeah, a friend. Said to me, well, you know, this is an art. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> this was something, this was something I had published. <laughs> This is something I had published. So I was like, all right. Um, And the continuation was that, you know, that this person's published work is art. So it sort of gets worse. And I was like, I was like, all right, okay, well, what's not what's not art about it? Uh, Well, it's it's your personal, it's your personal life. I'm like, well, you don't write about your personal life? Um, yeah, but it's art. I put a million dollars on the fact that this was a man. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, the LLK is yes. <laughs> and no more. <laughs> well, this comes back to whatever press you're working with that doesn't want to see pain pornography, right? I feel like that's very patriarchal. Okay. I mean, well, I, and, and okay, tell me about that. I'm interested, Kristen, well, what you think that. I mean, it's a fine line, right? We talk about uh, navel gazing and... Oh, that's different. All right. Navel gazing is different. Pain porn is different, I think. I mean, well, I, I'm so big categories here. <laughs> well, well, how's it different then? Uh, how's it different? Because I think pain, uh, if it's looked at sort of objectively and clinically, I mean, think of Sylvia Plath, full of pain. Um, you know, and it's not navel gazing, even though she was, she was accused of it. Um, she was accused by critics of her time, you know, that, and, and still, you know, a lot of particularly male of a generation have, you know, lambasted that, you know, we don't, we don't need to hear about this. You know, we, yeah, I feel like whoever this friend of yours was, and I don't know what piece you're talking about, but it's virtually saying the same thing because this is about your personal life or your. Well, it was about it was about my last book of poems, A History of Too Much, which I think is actually a kind of weird book because um, it um, is different from my first two collections of poetry. Um, it's a real kind of interface between in a way, you know, stuff out like an urban space and, right. and you know, uh, also obviously a political space and also a, a very personal uh, space well, as well. You know, yeah. it's, very, it's a very porous book, I guess. Yeah. Um, Which, I don't know how somebody could say this book is not art. Well, that's, well, people can say whatever they want to say. It's their right, you know, and I'm actually very interested when people say that. I mean, I'm yeah. interested in criticism because I'm curious especially if it's somebody who is you know well read and somebody who I respect uh but of course I get I've become one of the good things about getting older is my antennas are getting you know sharper yeah so you know I'm not as intimidated or even humiliated by those kinds of remarks anymore as much as I'm curious and also kind of more politically aware about why some of this might come up you know and so then it then it becomes more like a thriller <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> oh man but so did you want me to all right so the wig and the scream um so there were different weaves and i have to say too i shared it uh with my friend who you know plays quite a role in that piece because I didn't want to publish anything that she had any issue with, because obviously there's some stuff in there yeah, that's pretty, um, you know, um, acute, sharp, right? Um, and she was fine with it, and she would actually give me advice on it. So this was, in many ways, there was collaborative aspects to it. Hmm. And, for example, when I was, I wanted to be clear about certain of the scenes, I wanted to be very specific about what happened in certain episodes you know and she would like research it for me yeah you know and then I would look it up as well and we would share like our data so to speak right Right. yeah yeah but okay like okay go back to porn pain a minute because I'll tell you I think I get it in the sense that when I first started writing the wig and the scream I was um calling out all kinds of things like proximities Mm. (laughs) which Mm. is nice and dry and feels (laughs) safe right yeah. 
Um, and then I, um, I, you know, and then I, and then there was a lot of, you know, cause there's a lot of pain, obviously in her relationship there, obviously the speaker is talking about an ex relationship that still hurts her. Um, so there's a lot of hate, there's a lot of hurt there. Right. Yeah. So, um, I could have just delved into that, but I needed it to kind of, it's like, it's like cooking, right? The recipe, the right ingredients. So it wasn't too much of something. And then I was in, uh, this was like about, this was June last year. There was a conference in, in Italy. And I, I think about that, you know, that place and where, the, what happened, what has happened in a year, you know, just in terms of this whole thing. Uh, uh, so I was in Italy and I met um, uh, a friend. Uh, she wasn't a friend. I didn't know her. We met there. Um so Amanda, who's a Native American, and um, she and I were hanging out, and we went for gelatos and this and that. And so I, I don't know how it came up. We were talking about relationships, and she was telling me about the kinds of guys she ends up with. And I was um, I was really entertained. And, <laughs> and she was, and she's like this hugely confident young scholar. And um, I, I was just really impressed. And I said, you know, I get it. You, you come from a Native American culture, which is uh, matriarchal. That's why you're so strong, I said, you know, and in your relationships with men, you're so, you know, present and and confident and so forth. I said, you know, Southern European cultures are, are very um, patriarchal and and it's 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 harder for women, I think, uh, even though, you know, you have the you have the paradigm of the strong matriarch and so forth. Um, so I said, you know, I, I'm trying to, and I was writing, I was writing, you know, it was one of my drafts of the wig and the scream. And so, and I said to her, you know, so, so, you know, I have this friend and she gets this postcard from the scream and, you know, the guy that, you know, her, her husband's got this wig. So the wig and the scream, and she's like the wig and the scream. She goes, Adrian, that's beautiful. I said, that's it. I said, <laughs> It. That's that is the title. I love it. it. That's exactly what happened. So going back to intuition, like that moment brought it together. Mm. Like suddenly when she said the wig and the scream, I said, okay, I've got the control of this. Yeah. So while I was mucking around with words like proximity and, you know, being, you know, pseudo theoretical, this <laughs> I was going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, talking to Amanda and like, you know, really, I was so, it was just great. And so when I said the week in the screen, and so then when I wrote it and got it to where I wanted, I sent it to her, I said, she goes, oh, this is, this is great. You know, so a lot of times I write also as a kind of extended conversation. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not very good with homework assignments, but if, I'm involved with something that moves me and I'm in a conversation with a friend and I say, okay, this is going to be, we need to somehow get this out there. Uh, there's yeah. I, yeah. I, that'll be a motivating factor for me to get, to get work done. Yeah. That's quite beautiful. I think I need to have more conversations. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, for sure. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> But you do, you're doing with the, with the podcasts are wonderful conversations. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's, it's helpful. Not that, I mean. And you are also, you're really generous to us. 
all of us, you know, I mean, it's great. I mean, I think that's why I thought it was a great idea when you first launched it, you know, it's just the sharing of the, you know, various ways that, and, and there's going to be a lot more of that now that we're all housebound. Yeah. It's, it's it, like you said earlier, it's about attending the virtual workshops and whatnot. It's like traveling in a way um, to another space, having yeah. these conversations. Yeah. It's really nice. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. This was, I mean, I, I was really, I was glad to see you. Yeah. Nice. Cause um, I mean, I enjoyed our, all the work we did together and all the amazing kind of work and changes that you went through on the manuscript. And I, I just have such admiration for, you know, just the courage it takes to not only do the writing, but then, you know, you were talking about the wig and the scream, but that kind of, you know, um, there's a stubbornness, but also a commitment to a work to get it to a certain place. That place might be the place it becomes something like the book that will be, or it might be one of the stopping points to where it will become the book. Yeah. Just give it, you know, be generous about that. And because, you know, we change. And so when we go back to things, it's like, you know, revisiting relationships too. I mean, there are things, there are things, and maybe we go back to that for just a second. There are things in those, those relationships that are troubled or Mm -hmm. darker, uh, where we invest something of ourselves and it tends to be, you know, something that comes out of our childhood, obviously, and all of that stuff. I mean, it's familiar enough for better or worse, if it's toxic for worse, Mm. uh, that we, we hang out in those spaces longer than we should. But at the same time, I think part of the liberation of all that is to realize that you can take that to another place. You don't necessarily lose those parts of yourself. I mean, there's just massive amounts of loneliness and despair, of course, when, um, when it doesn't work and there are investments, mm-hmm. but I think that's also, I know this is going to sound maybe odd, but that that's its own gift. I want to say, I mean, it teaches us some aspects that are, they're harder lessons, but they're also there's, there's also things that we gain from being on our own and, you know, figuring things out, even if it's, even if it's something just very essential, like I don't want to be treated like shit (laughs) or something of that sort, you know? Yeah. I wrote down one line from the wig and the scream, which This is the line. Why, I wonder, did he come so fully into my life to leave it so suddenly? Mm. And, I mean, I know it doesn't even, it doesn't, it's not necessarily the most pertinent line to the whole, the big idea of that piece, but those are, I mean, the last meaningful, really meaningful relationship that I had, it kind of ended like that. You know, we spent, we spent, well, you met her, I think. We spent the summer in Oh, yes. Europe. Yeah. 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 Yes. And then uh, when we got home, 
she she just wanted to move move out of Denver move out of Colorado and just kind of left so and I mean I have a history of being in relationships with people that, that tend to be okay with just leaving uh-huh. so I did want to briefly ask you know why do you think why do you think people do that um I finally I think after thinking a lot about this and this had something to do with the mother manuscript too I think I think relationships are like emotional capital and you know the way and I know this is a, this is a really Adrian moment right now. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna like do this as an oral essay. Please do. Yeah, like okay. So like the way the Dutch go to Africa and like take all the coffee mm-hmm. and diamonds and so forth, um, you know, or the Belgian Congo and so forth. So too, people will come into relationships thinking, oh, I really like this. They're giving me all this, you know, nature and nurture, and I feel great. I feel like a man. I feel like a woman. I feel sexual. I feel, and then they're like, okay, maybe I can take this elsewhere. Mm. Like, do I really have to, you know, stay with this? Um, Because it's not quite perfect because now that I feel good and now that I've been given, you know, some of the, the power back, let's say. Mm. Um, And so I think, and that happens a lot when we're younger and, and it makes, some sense, you know, because we're kind of driven also by our hormones and so forth and our own like curiosities. But then I think when when we get older, it's less, I want to say forgivable. I don't want to sound, I mean, I'm not trying to be kind of conservative or anything, but I think there's a, I mean, Maggie Nelson's Bluets kind of uh, asks some of these questions too uh, of the lover that she has in that particular book. Mm-hmm. Um where the man is between two between herself and somebody else. And they have this very intense and very sexual connection. Mm -hmm. And then he goes off and he marries the other woman or he ends up living with her or something. And then she ups and goes to California and then her whole life takes another turn. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and he says, there's a line in Bluets where he says that he tells her, I love you both, but in totally different ways. And then if you think of The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which I think is just a brilliant novel. Have you read that novel? I haven't. Oh, you'll love it. It's it's on my list. Oh, but I think you'll like it. I mean, I think, think, have you read anything of Kundera's? Mm -mm. Oh, okay. Chris, go for it. Because I think, yeah. Because since you're writing a short story now and you're, you know, doing some fiction, yeah. You know, uh, he's a kind of essayistic novelist. You know, he writes novels the way I mean, I mean he could write novel sort of like a nonfiction writer would write a novel maybe. Mm, yeah. Uh but so th- so he so there too, you know, you have two s- central characters. You have Thomas who's like, you know, he says that for him sex is like football. And you know, he just enjoys the game of it. And you know, all the power to him, you know, why not? But on the other hand, he gets quite involved with Teresa and then Sabrina. And, you know, these two, they're two very different kinds of women. So as much as we can be like, I know this is, again, another Adrian moment, but (laughs) we can be very very capitalistic about emotions as much as we can be about objects and things. Mm 
like to collect emotions or to collect experiences because we're hungry for them and we want them. And then we don't realize maybe along the way that maybe that person was actually kind of important to us, or maybe I shouldn't have treated that person in that way, but that happens quite a bit later. You know, I mean, I guess we've all been in that place, so it can go, it can go both ways. Um, I don't know if that helps to answer that idea. I think, uh, yeah, spot on. Do you think, do you find it cruel? Of course. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I feel like you're you're talking to, you're talking to, uh, you know, somebody who's lived in Southern Europe and who's got, you know, all of that in her, um, you know, of course life is cruel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you think it's cruel of those people that leave? Absolutely. You're right. I feel like you're right. So what's the word about your ex in, in the wig and the scream, even like you, you make, you write compassionately about him. Huh? I think that's, I'm, I'm glad you said that actually. Although, I mean, I was pissed at him from the very beginning with that, with that missed text, like, good mo- good morning, how's my baby? You don't accidentally send that to an ex. That's so funny because, you know, this is like, okay, yeah, we're all out now. I mean, you know, the thing, <laughs> you know, the thing is, is, you know, I've, I've, I've almost like, like bets with friends. Like I have friends who are like, oh, there's no way somebody would do that. No way. Like literally in the tone I'm giving, I'm saying it to you. And I'm like, oh, yes there's a way that somebody would do that. Yeah. <laughs> but not accidentally. You know what I mean? No, like, not accidentally. No, no, no. But, but that goes back. Let's, let's segue back now. Cause I think this is very important. That goes back. We're going to connect Trump to this, believe it or not, <laughs> because, because uh, or Trump voters, anyway, Trump yeah. voters, like Come you on. don't want to give up the image you have about yourself. And that's yeah. important to all of us. Like we, 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 we're, we're a little bit, you know, trigger happy about, the 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 labels we put on people these days like oh he's a narcissist she's a narcissist they're this they're that like we're all of those things right so it's but it's a question of scale and quantity um so um i i mean i just think you know we're going to sort of we're we're just going to sterilize ourselves so much that we're not even going to know what the human is eventually mm-hmm. so cruelty you know is there it's one of those ingredients of course if it's in big doses it can kill you absolutely um, um, it's interesting that you thought that I, you know, was compassionate. I, well, I don't know. That, I, I don't mean, know. I, I, that might that not be the right word. Right <laughs> I mean, you're not, uh, uh, maybe I haven't processed the way, the, what I'm trying no. to say yet, but I'm just kind of scrolling through the piece right now. Um, no, but I, I would agree with you. I mean, it's not like, I mean, um, I mean, geez, look at all of, look at all of Shakespeare, look at all of drama. I mean, man, I mean, people were doing hardcore stuff, you did know, you, did you, you know, uh, off. yeah, did you, um, get your hands on the book mother winter yet? No, but I have it on my list and I actually, I downloaded it on Kindle. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm gonna totally read it. You know, because I mean, I you know, I hear I have this manuscript, and I, to- I but I have to get. I've been like totally overrun with online teaching up until oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. So I'm actually, this is, this kind of inaugurates my time. So it's very nice to be doing it with you. Well, um, you know, it's largely about loss of relationship. Uh, in this case, her mother, my friend, Sophia, it's a memoir. It's very experimental, but it's a memoir about how, um, you know, her and her father kind of had to flee to the States during the Soviet. She's Ukrainian, right? Uh, Russian. Russian. So she has this huge abandonment story, right? So, and then recently she reconnected with an ex from 20 years ago or something like that. And it was like this really seemingly beautiful full circle moment for her. They're madly in love. They're invested in each other. He came with her to Denver um, for her workshop and everything. And then, and she might make me edit this out. I don't know, but he disappeared when the uh, coronavirus hit. He vanished. So she is. Well, what did she have anything to do with the coronavirus? I mean, well, people are weird with these sorts of things. Well, generally. I don't know that it had to do with it, but that was the timing of it, which I think is notable, right? So he's yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, they're they're he's supposed to come over for dinner, and she goes to his apartment and it's empty, <laughs> and, she, and he and he won't respond to her. He won't give her an explanation. So she's losing her mind for a few days, you know, and she's got kids and he's in, in their lives now. And, <clears throat> and wow. you talk about cruelty, right? So, Oh yeah. That's, that's another level, but he comes back. He's back. He drives down three hours to explain himself and she's not having it. She drives down again. This is in Portland three hours to explain it. She's still not having it. And it's just so interesting to me and yeah. especially i mean i think there's something to the maleness of it i mean i tap sure. with, you with female partners which adds a another layer but uh, she talks she wrote a lot on social media about kind of this violence this male violence of because the first time he came back, he was saying things like, he's so sick over this. He's so madly in love with her. And he's sobbing and throwing up. And she's like, fuck you, kind of thing. Like, you you left. <laughs> well, you know, I, think I, I think you're right to... to, to I, I think, I mean, as much as I try not to be too binary about things, right. uh, the gender thing, the maleness, it's it's... You know, I mean, I mean, the whole, I mean, from my experience anyway, uh, men have a lot more problems with intimacy in general. So, I mean, you know, they, they tend to like, there's, there's some sort of point where they freak out and they either, you know, backtrack or realize that maybe they don't want to lose whatever it is that was going on, but it might be too late or, you know, it depends. It depends where, where life takes the individuals, right? Yeah. So she might, I mean, if he insists, I mean, if she wants him enough, I mean, the problem here is trust though. You know, when it, I mean, this is always the issue. And that was what, one of the things I was looking at, that was one of the things that I was exploring in the wig and the scream is this trust. And of course, in the killing, in the plot of the killing, you know, the, the policeman, you know, the head of the, is the, is the killer, you know, the main killer. 
And so, you know, where you put your trust. And so that was part of the rift on the law that, you know, we put our trust necessarily in structures bigger than us that are, you know, that are objectively going to make some mistakes sometimes. Um, so, you know, it's really important to keep the conversation open and the communication and what's particularly cruel. And I think men do this better than women, although not always, um, <laughs> is that they, you know, they will withhold um, communication as a, as a way. It, it's, it's, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a really, Power. I mean, it's a sign of their impotence. I'll just put it, I'll just put it that way because, you know, you know, it's like, why would you avoid that unless you just felt, you know, very kind of, what's the word, um, powerless or, you know, it, it's a very defensive gesture. I mean, Victorian women did this all the time. Yeah. So now we see men doing it, you know, so do they feel like Victorian women? Maybe. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely a power move, like a control move. I, I, I find this interesting because it goes kind of back to attachment uh, theory, yeah. which I do a lot of reading about, but I tend towards avoidant partners, avoidantly attached partners. So they're female, but they're, they've done the same thing. Withholding communication. It's mad. Because you're, the one, because you're the one that is open to the conversation, perhaps, yeah. or the one that, and so then they get used to that. Yeah. So maybe be more unpredictable to yourself. Oh, that's my work, right? That's my That's your little that's your little assignment, your yeah. prompt. Yeah. <laughs> so and um, you know, don't feel don't feel um about your your manuscript, you know, don't feel I mean I, I it makes total sense. I mean it might be two years before you even want to look at it. I mean yeah. that you know, it's it it was intense and you did a lot of work. I mean there I mean it's got it's got so much in it that's really powerful. I just think you need to um, let it sit for a little bit. Yeah. I was realizing over the, basically since I finished the first draft or whatever, how much my identity, what my identity had become over the past decade, my trauma story. And that's all I saw myself as. So I think when, mm -hmm. once I finally released that, now it's like, I'm building this new identity and yes. maybe that's almost part of the aversion to going back to the story. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. That, that's healthy. I mean, that's a, I mean, healthy, unhealthy. I hate these terms. I don't know why I use them, but anyway, uh, you know, but that's natural. I mean, I think that's a kind of natural reaction, you know, that yeah. you would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's why sometimes people publish books and then they never read them again. Yeah. Like, I was telling you at NYU, I had El Doctoro as my as my professor, and um, I mean, he 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 actually said, you know, I never read my books once they're published. Yeah, like it's like you don't want to, you know, it's so intense. It's it's because it's what you did, you know, you wrote your book, and you were so into it, and now you want to move on to, you know, to the to the next thing that you're gonna yeah. do, you know. So, and a lot of times when people publish, they don't always say these things. You know, they're usually, you know, a book ahead of the publication or more than one book ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it it became complete something completely different. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. 
I mean, it's interesting, again, because some of my Greek poet friends and writers, mostly poets I know, I mean, most of the Greek writers I know are poets, and their relationship to work is so much less um, uh, possessive mm. than, and it, again, it goes back to this idea of a Western notion of, of you know, gathering things. Like, there's a more sense that, you know, we are the conduit for the writing, mm. We, we are, we serve the writing, but if we don't get, you know, huge awards and titles and so forth, those are nice too, but your, but your, but your real, your real loyalty is to, is to, you know, the muse and to what moves you. And there yeah. are other things in life too. And we write because we're moved by things. We don't, we don't write instead of being moved by things. I mean, I mean, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. So that is come is liberating because it allows you to be a little freer about. You know, I had a conversation yesterday with Michelle Philgate. I'm not sure if you know her, but she she was at AWP Portland. She she edited the anthology "What My Mother and I Don't Talk About." Oh, oh, yeah. wow. I, I, uh, yeah, but she she's getting her MFA at NYU right now in fiction, and she got a fellowship to go abroad. She was living in Florence um, to finish her thesis and was kind of forced to come back home once oh. the COVID thing. But we were talking about how writing feels different when we're and again not to over romanticize europe but it's a different experience on european soil because in part there's you know it's about the art it's a it's a more leisurely approach to art and to writing than in the west where it's almost competitive and like you said about the awards and the publication so it's an interesting i've been thinking about that i don't know if it's uh, more leisurely but it's less ego invested in the ways that um it might be yeah in, uh, the west you know i mean yeah. jupa lahiri left the u.s after winning the pulitzer for her first book and goes to rome lives in rome teaches herself italian and lives there for so many years, you know, like talk about trying somebody who's trying to get away from the limelight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting what you said. All right. Well, thank you so much. Was- thank you, Chris. We'll talk again. All right. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, keep reading, and we'll see you next time.